Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the LawCast. This week, the March to WrestleMania continues as we cover um, a show that proves that perhaps sequels are never as good as the original with WrestleMania 2. Kyush, is this the worst WrestleMania? Oh, boy, you're just springing that on me, are you? All right. Um, I would say that what WrestleMania are we on now? Is it like 35? 34 will be this year. Okay, 34. This is probably in the bottom five. Definitely. And there, there have been a lot of these, and a lot of them have sucked. But this one, this one isn't just bad. It's just structurally unsound, like a foreclosed-on building. Like, it's just, when they came up with the idea for this show, not enough thought went into whether or not they could actually pull this shit off. No, this is hubris in its highest form, and the show is a business success, but I think kind of a creative calamity. Um, so... After WrestleMania 1, they want to do something bigger and better. They decide we're going to run three different venues. Of course, this is not an original idea because Starcade had done this the year before. And when I say the year before, I mean, you know, four months before in November, they had done um, Greensboro and Atlanta and just jumped back and forth from venue to venue for each match. Um, Vince decided we'll go one better. We'll do three different buildings in different time zones all across the country. I mean, it's an incredibly ambitious idea to do a show like simultaneously sort of from New York, Chicago, and Los Angeles. It's an amazing idea in terms of spectacle, but in terms of actually presenting a wrestling show, it's a fucking stupid idea. I'm stunned the crowds didn't get angrier when they, you know, it kind of dawned on them that they had paid big money ticket prices to watch a couple bad matches and then watch more matches on a TV screen in the arena. Yeah. I, I mean, it must be worth saying that, like, we just had a similar situation to this at WrestleMania yes. 20, or at Raw 25, where <laughs> at the Manhattan Center, they saw half a show, and at the Barclays Center, they saw half a show. And uh, I didn't hear so much from the Barclays Center people that they were unhappy about what they got because they got all the good stuff. Yeah, well, the, yeah, the people in the Manhattan Center, some of them paid, I don't know, I saw up to $2,000 on the secondary market, and they ended up getting Bray Wyatt versus Matt Hardy and a click reunion yeah. and a really bad Undertaker promo. But I will argue that this is exponentially worse because just imagine, like, let's say that you're a parent and you get tickets to WrestleMania at the Rosemont Horizon, and like your kid's going, and it's great, and you get there, and you only get four matches and no Hulk Hogan. Yeah. Well, the I doubt New York got it the worst, because their main event was Mr. T versus Roddy Piper in a terrible worked boxing match. And like the rest of their card, like it's unfathomably shit. Yes. Like, all of these cards, when taken by themselves, are the worst cards in the history of professional wrestling. Who who do you think got the best? Did LA get it, or did Chicago get it because the Battle Royal was fun and they also got a decent tag match? I mean, I think at this point, it's just whoever gets Hulk Hogan, because that's yeah. what everybody's showing up to see. So I think yeah, LA got it. Um, but it just in terms of the actual quality of the show, it's got to be Chicago. Yeah, I would agree with that. So the company's business has grown and changed pretty significantly in the years since WrestleMania. Uh, the partnership with MTV is over. Uh, MTV, you know, I've heard was interested in buying part of the company or at least 
getting some money from the WWF in exchange for the exposure they were giving them. And Vince was unsurprisingly not cool with that. So no more MTV until they started broadcasting heat in the early two thousands. You always kind of think that like that partnership lasted like a super long time, but it really only lasted like two years, right? Yeah, they did that. Well, less than, I guess less than a year because they did. Wow. uh, Brawled ended all in the summer of 84. And then the Hogan Piper match in February 85. And that was it. I made everyone a lot of money and then it immediately ended. Yeah. But they got something much better when they landed the NBC deal and started producing Saturday night's main event. Um, First one came a couple months after WrestleMania, a taped network special. They would, play it in place of Saturday Night Live on weeks when SNL was off. Uh, you would get four or five of them per year. These are some of these are really my favorite WWF shows from this era. I've loved these Saturday Night's main events. They're fast paced, no kind of fat to them, one hour shows without commercial commercials, really sharp promos and video packages, high production quality and top quality matches. I think th- this is the best TV they produced in this era. Ironically, these Saturday night's main events would probably go on to dictate more what WrestleMania would look like in the future than any of these early WrestleManias did. What just do you in say terms that? of like, that's the, interesting. I just mean, just in terms of like, they specifically had to like up the production value yes. and up like the music and the grandeur. And it just, I think it just became that every big event from that point on, Vince realized that he had to go to that level of production because they were still doing like kind of the dank house show stuff for the most part. But <laughs> they, they did three pretty dank productions here. Uh, I thought Rosemont, lo- Rosemont in LA looked a lot better than Nassau. Nassau looked terrible. It's the Nassau Coliseum. <laughs> yeah. You had a WrestleMania in the Nassau Coliseum. I've never looked into it. I don't know why it wasn't Madison Square Garden. I wonder if the rent was too high to make it work or they couldn't schedule the three buildings in one night. Maybe the Rangers had a doubleheader that day. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so um, they, they, they would use Saturday night's main event to set up WrestleMania most years. Um, the big angle for this one was King Kong Bundy attacking Hulk Hogan. He interfered at Hogan's title defense against Don Morocco on the March 1st episode of Saturday night's main event, Bundy hits him with a bunch of avalanche splashes, breaks Hogan's ribs. Hogan is taken to the local medical facility, although they actually said hospital back then. (laughs) And yeah, it's in question whether his career will go on, but of course he is determined to make it to WrestleMania and defend his title against Bundy. It's just the most basic wrestling build you could come up with where the invincible face gets destroyed by the big monster heel and is going to make a comeback, but perfectly effective, just not as big as Mr. T the year before. So this build only got like one month. Yeah. I mean, Hogan and Bundy Hogan and Andre teamed up against Bundy and stud on a Saturday night's main event in like November 85. So they had kind of been in conflict, but yeah, really it's just a quick, it was a it was a quick build, yeah. A couple weeks after shooting this big angle, and really, yeah. 
Yeah, the, the, the big exposure is the NBC special. That's what people are seeing. And then right. you know, they have follow-up interviews and stuff on um, their syndicated shows. But yeah, this is kind of the this is kind of this is a quick build. This is the one big angle to it. Yeah. And it's just funny because like there is no big match on any of these shows. There's just a lot of things that are supposed to take the place of big matches. And we'll keep going through that, obviously. But it's just important to remember that, like, if Hulk Hogan had actually had, like, a really big and interesting, like, feud or match to blow this off, like, it could have been... We, we would think of this show differently if the main event was bigger, I think. Yeah, it's interesting that they went with... I understand why they went with Bundy. So the other two options I would see would be Orndorff, who right. would go on to have a monster program with later in the year. But I think they just felt like it was too soon to turn Orndorff heel, that he needed to be friends with Hogan for a little bit longer for that turn to kind of have the impact it needed. Uh, I mean, Hogan and Orndorff in August of this year will sell 60,000-plus tickets in Toronto for the big event. Just a massive, massive show that nobody really remembers happened because it was called the big event, and there was no big event too. Um, right. But kind of the precursor to SummerSlam. But yeah, Hogan and Orndorff have one of the hottest house show programs of the 80s. Uh, just massive money they're bringing in, but no pay-per-view match for them. Right. I guess I don't know if the big event was a pay-per-view or not. It's in the pay-per-view section on the network, but I don't know if it actually aired on pay-per-view or closed circuit. Yeah, we'll have to do that one that sometime because I've never seen it. Had no idea really it even existed. It's not a bad show. And stadium shows are always fun. Um, so the, the other thing they could do, they could have done, you know, Hogan and Piper, but as we've documented, Piper won't lose. So what are, you can't do, you're just going to do it. I think they'd run out of people were probably going to run out of patience with DQ finishes between those guys at this point. Um, Hogan and Piper had wrestled on the wrestling classic, the kind of first true pay-per-view, which was, uh, November 85 and Hogan and Piper wrestled on that card and went to another DQ as their matches basically always did because Piper wasn't going to do a job and they weren't going to take the title off Hogan. Yeah. It's just, that's a shame because if this is headlined by Hulk Hogan versus Roddy Piper, that's enormous. The proper blow off steel cage match. And it, it seems like you could have, it seems crazy to me that you couldn't even talk Piper into losing a cage match where he doesn't get pinned that Hogan just wins by escaping the cage. Right. But uh, seemingly they couldn't. Instead, we get a boxing match between Piper and Mr. T. Uh, yeah. This feud is still going on. This is the long running feud because it's been going since the previous year on that same Saturday night's main event with the Hogan Bundy angle. They had a boxing match between Mr. T and Bob Orton, and T knocked Bob Orton out. Bob Orton betraying his wrestling brothers and doing the job to Mr. T. That's so amazing that people were so <coughs> people are so unwilling to put over literally anybody from any other sport, and I, that's from an age where you couldn't break kayfabe, you couldn't show that wrestlers were any less tough, and they held it very carefully to the chest. But it's just so funny because now. I mean, anybody will do a job for anybody, like from any walk of life. Somebody did a job for Seth Green. Like, it's just how it is now. John Cena did a job to Kevin Federline. The Young Bucks did a job to an eight-year-old girl. There you go. 
Um, <clears throat> so like I said, they, they're experimenting with pay-per-view. The Wrestling Classic did about 50,000 buys. This show is primarily on closed circuit, but they, the pay-per-view universe has expanded quite a bit. I've seen buy numbers kind of all over the place for this. I've seen as high as 250,000, but that doesn't seem plausible. I see 100,000 is the estimate I find more reasonable. And that's a really, I mean, I, I didn't see a buy rate number with that, but that would be a very large buy rate, probably like an eight or 10 for this time. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> eight to 10% of the pay-per-view universe buy, and that's, they would do an eight or 10 buy rate the next year for WrestleMania three. So these, I mean, these early shows are just attracting a crazy percentage of the pay-per-view audience. In years later, we would talk about a 1.0 buy rate as being a success when that would be equivalent to, you know, something like 400,000 buys here. They're getting eight, 10% of the pay-per-view audience. And please understand what it took in order to order a pay-per-view back in these days. Yes. This you is a good history lesson. You actually had to drag your ass down to your local cable company office, ask for a, a pay-per-view box. You'd have to get rent it from them take it home, install it into your cable system, or pay to have somebody install it into yeah. your cable system. <laughs> and then you would have it for one use for that particular night, and then you have to take it back to the place where they would charge you exorbitant late fees. It was a nightmare to order pay-per-views at that point. So yeah. just understand that everyone who had the capability to order a pay-per-view, 10% of those people on Earth did. Yeah, and you had to, the deposit to get the box was probably a hundred bucks. Yeah, which is the equivalent back of you know three hundred dollars today. Yeah, you could buy one and just have it all the time, but nobody was doing that. But that would have been ludicrously expensive. Yeah, so basically, the pay per view cost is ridiculously exorbitant, but people are shelling out like wild. Yeah. Um. So th they do the three cities thing. It's ambitious. It's big and bold. We're going to be coast to coast. Problem is it triples the costs. You have to rent three arenas. You have to have three production crews, hire tons more people, tons and tons of, and stretch your production staff dramatically short. You don't have Vince running the shows in all three locations because he's on commentary in New York. And I assume... Once they went away, for, once the New York portion finished, he was probably on the phone with the arena. Now it's something they probably set up some kind of phone speaker system for him to be able to call the arenas and yell at them during the other portions of the show. Now, I think a big part of where they went wrong on this is that they were no strangers to running two towns at the same time. In fact, they frequently did. They would have the A town and the B town. Yeah. Like Hogan would go to one, the Intercontinental Champion would go to the other. They were used to running in two crews. Maybe if they only do maybe like Chicago and LA, maybe this looks way, way better and it works way, way better. Splitting themselves into three is something that they didn't really do. And it shows because but they're they just... had to be bigger than Starcade. But Starcade just, did... Starcade did three little redneck towns. We've got to do three big cities. Hubris, man. Like, th this could have worked if they had done two towns, gigantic cities, big arenas, two shows. They had the horses to do that, but they, they went way past and just blew past their actual talent here. Yeah. And, I mean, as far as business, this show does okay. They do a million dollars at the gate between three different cities. They... 
you know, draw a couple hundred thousand on closed circuit plus a hundred thousand on pay-per-view. It's a bigger gross than WrestleMania one, like pretty significantly bigger, probably six, 7 million um, compared to the 4 million the year before. But the costs are really high because they have to use, like I said, rent three arenas, you know, pay production crews in three different places, three lighting rigs, three satellite hookups, all this stuff. Plus, the amount that they're paying talent has got to be bigger than usual, not only just because they're bringing in the football guys, they're bringing in these celebrities, but also because I don't think I ever remember a show where Hogan, Andre, and San Martino are all on the same WrestleMania. Am I wrong about that? Uh, Bruno's gone after this. This is Bruno's only WrestleMania in the ring and his last WrestleMania until he was inducted into the Hall of Fame in New York for WrestleMania 29. And Mr. T, like, look, some yeah. paychecks are being handed out here is what big, I'm saying. Big yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so the other big fascinating thing, and I don't want to get off on too much of a tangent here, but... This is when Jesse Ventura tried to form the Wrestlers Union. Um, he kind of saw his opportunity a couple weeks before this, after they've got all the promotion for WrestleMania going. He kind of stands up to the locker room, says, you know, this is our moment. If we threaten to walk out and not do WrestleMania right now, Vince is going to be screwed. So we can you know, stick together and do this right now. We can get a union. And the next day he gets a call from Vince, who is irate has heard about this union scheme. Jesse says the only reason Vince didn't fire him is Jesse was leaving the company anyway to film Predator. Um, he'd be back, but that's kind of another story. Um, but as would be revealed in a lawsuit deposition years later, it was Hulk Hogan who stooged him out to Vince. Now the ramifications of this possible union. Oh my God. We could do a whole show just about the idea of a union launching in WWE in 1986, where like the territories were still strong enough. They would have had another place to go, how that would have changed the wrestling industry going forward with guaranteed contracts and healthcare and all of this shit. It doesn't happen. No. Hulk Hogan is a stooge. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I just, Jesse doesn't find out about that until 1990. So him and Hogan remain friends for years after this, even though um, at once he finds out that Hogan stabbed him in the back on this, he never forgave him. And uh, there's still some, I think there's still some pretty serious heat on that to this day. But J Jesse was brought back both at the request of Dick Ebersol, who was a big fan. And um, what Jesse told Vince is like, now that I'm doing movies, like I'm, I'm in the Screen Actors Guild. I don't need a wrestler's union. So, like, I'll, I, w I will not cause any more trouble with that. Man, it's just, I just want you guys to remember this Hulk Hogan and Jesse Ventura thing because there's a segment later in the show that we're going to talk about that I just want you to have this fresh in your mind when we get to it. Okay. Just, just focus that in your mind and we'll get there later. That's the other what, that's the other thing that I think could have made it. I mean, Jesse and Hogan never happens. They were, just about to start a house show program when Jesse discovered his clotting problem and was in the hospital and almost died. And that's, he was still wrestling a bit around this time, but he couldn't do a big proper program because if he got cut in the ring, he would die. He was on medication to keep his blood, to thin his blood and keep it from clotting. So if he 
you know, gets even a little scratch. He could bleed out in minutes and die. So he ends up never really wrestling on a big stage, just a tag match here and there and doesn't have the career he could have, but holy shit, could Jesse Ventura have been a huge star in this era? Oh, absolutely. There's like a, a long list. Better than, I mean, maybe better than Hogan. I mean, got a better physique than Hogan, a, a different kind of charisma. I, without question, Ventura and Hogan would have made some money together. Like, there's oh, what no a question. Great combination. Like, honestly, the person whose career might have affected most might have been Piper's because Piper may never have been top yeah. heel. If I, I think, in yeah, the I, I think that Ventura, because he presented such a more credible physical threat to Hogan, would have been the guy to go with in this era. Absolutely. And I think much, I think more cooperative than Piper, less of a weirdo. Yeah, he would have actually done a job. Like, that's that's <laughs> yeah. the idea. He's not an idiot like Piper. Um, so it's April 7th, 1986, a Monday night, presumably just the night they could get all three of these arenas at the same time. Um, we're at the Nassau Coliseum in Uniondale, New York, the Rosemont Horizon in Rosemont, Illinois and the Los Angeles Memorial Sports Arena in Los Angeles, California. Um, the WWF would return to the Rosemont Horizon for WrestleMania 13 and WrestleMania 22, and the LA Sports Arena for WrestleMania 7, and never return to the Nassau Coliseum for WrestleMania. And they absolutely never, well, not only because the building, I think, has now been demolished but even if it wasn't they would never go back there for a wrestlemania because it's a garbage building it is a garbage building ladies and gentlemen um so the combined attendance between the three venues is about forty thousand. they do sixteen thousand five hundred at the nassau coliseum for four hundred and fourteen thousand dollars at the gate Nine thousand at the Rosemont Horizon for two hundred ninety-four thousand, and fourteen thousand five hundred at the LA Sports Arena for three hundred eighty thousand dollars. That is a gate of exactly a million dollars. Inflation adjusted, basically triple it, three million dollars. Um, pretty good haul for one night. Oh yeah, absolutely. And then they do 319000 on closed circuit and let's say 100000 on pay-per-view. Pay-per-view was 1995 back then, equivalent of $45 today. All in six, seven, eight million dollars gross. Not a bad night, but I think they were probably expecting more. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things like with movies where it's like, wow, that movie made $500 million, but they spent 600 on advertising and the production budget. I think this is one of those shows where, like, I would be surprised that they made much of a profit, honestly. Yeah, but this goes to a Vince McMahon philosophy, and it's a story from WrestleMania 14 where somebody's trying to talk him out of bringing in Mike Tyson, saying, you know, we're going to have to pay him $3 million or whatever. That means we'll have to do 650,000 buys just to break even. If we don't bring him in, we can do 300,000 buys and break even. And Vince goes, I'd rather lose money at 650,000 buys than make money with 300,000. And I can't decide if that's genius or hubris. A <laughs> little bit of both, but I see the, I mean, I see the logic of it, that of a show being a loss leader, you know, WrestleMania 14 was still profitable, but Tyson ate up a lot of the profit, but yeah. it exposed so many more people to their product that it was absolutely good in the long run. Right. But Absolutely. that same logic, you know, did not work out with Lawrence Taylor at WrestleMania 11. 
Yeah. In fact, he's tried it so many times that we comment on how like celebrity obsessed he is. But you get it because when it works, it puts you in front of so many more eyes. And we're kind of kind of currently going through this with Ronda Rousey, where like some fans just don't want her and don't understand why she's here. Well, R- Rousey's different because she's going to be a basically full time. I don't know what full time means, but at least a Brock Lesnar schedule. Right. But even so, like even if you don't like it, the point is so many more people are going to be watching. That's the point, or at least aware of it. That's why they go on SportsCenter. That's why they go on ESPN and NBC and do the Today Show, just to get eyes on the product. Awareness what, what, is the word. What worked with fighting. Mr. T and with Tyson was they were able to use them in the eyes they drew to get Hogan and Austin over, and it didn't succeed with um, with Lawrence Taylor, they were not able to make a star with LT's involvement. They were not able to make a star with Donald Trump's involvement. They were not able to make a star with Floyd Mayweather's involvement, even though Trump and Mayweather both drew massive money for those WrestleManias. There was no long-term effect because they weren't, they didn't use them and weren't able to use them to get anyone over. And at the time, you know, they didn't really have anyone who, could translate as a mainstream star the way Austin and Hogan could. I'm not sure what you mean. Isn't Bobby Lashley the biggest mainstream star in the entire world? Ah, maybe, maybe in this next run he will be. <laughs> so our announcers for the night, we have Whoa. Vince McMahon and actress Susan St. James in New York, Gorilla Monsoon, Gene Okerlund, and Kathy Lee Crosby in Chicago, and Jesse Ventura... Lord Alfred Hayes, and Elvira in Los Angeles. So like I said, Susan St. James is a reasonably successful actress, but she's really there because she's married to Dick Ebersol at this time. Um, yes. Kathy Lee Crosby would, of course, later host Regis and Kathy. I don't know what she was. I assume she was like a talk show host in Chicago at this point. Probably. And explain Elvira if you could. Elvira was originally the host of kind of, it was basically like a a horror movie hour. She was sort of like a, God, I don't know. The closest thing that I can compare it to is like the Crypt Keeper on Tales from the Crypt, but way sexier. (laughs) Yes. And she sort of just became like a cult figure because of that. In much the same way that Mr. T did, it wasn't really that he did stuff. It was just that he became one of those people who was everywhere. Elvira was like that. Yeah. Um, so I think we, Susan St. James is way out of her depth and being asked to do way too much here. I don't know. They really should have gotten somebody else in the booth with a three-person team would have been fine there. But Vince having to carry that is not good. Why couldn't they just put Dick Ebersol on? <laughs> uh, he was probably running the Chicago portion of the broadcast. Or oh, maybe, a- I don't know. Or maybe he was, I don't know where he was, actually. I, this is actually one thing I wish I, I could get answered is, who was in charge at each of these buildings? I assume Patterson's got to be at one of them. Right. And Vince is in New York, but he's broadcasting, so... Um, yeah, somebody's running so, Gorilla for him. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think, who are his people at this point? You've got Patterson, Arnold Skoland, Gorilla... Um, Mulligan, yeah. I mean, so I guess they probably just divided it up between the three buildings. Yeah. Ernie, Ernie Ladd is in Chicago. They bring him in for commentary on the Battle Royal. 
which was great. <laughs> this is part of like it, I, I can't believe Vince was Vince McMahon, the control freak, was willing to not be at the other two buildings. And as I kind of said before, it wasn't like he could just call somebody on their cell phone. Like they surely had to put a lot of thought into how he was going to be able to communicate with the other buildings if he could at all. And, and just imagine Vince McMahon's position here, because not only does he not certain of exactly what's going on at the other buildings, if they're going to be perfect, he's on screen. And not only is he on screen doing his normal thing, he's carrying both sides of a commentary team yes. calling all of these matches. Yes. I mean, I just, like I said, I wish we could hear the audio of what he said when he hit the mute button when they were fucking up the production. Yes. Those would be some legendary meltdowns. Because they continuously fuck up the production oh on this God. show. It's a disaster. Yeah, like we talked about production problems with WrestleMania 1. It's way worse this year. Like literally, Mr. T starts cutting a promo and halfway through it, the ring announcer just starts talking over him. So you can't yes. even tell what he's saying. So for like two unchecked minutes, you're just look, watching his mouth move <laughs> and you can't tell what the fuck he's saying. Uh, so we get a quick intro with jazzy music. We go to Vince in the ring. He does, welcome to WrestleMania. And then he introduces... Ray Charles to perform America the Beautiful. It's a hilarious Vince intro because this is where he finds the gravel voice. Was this Vince trying to be soulful, do you think? I think so, because he always kind of did this when he was introducing... I don't know if it's the Southern Vince coming out or if it's, dare I say, a little bit of a black sound. Ray Charles! Ray Charles! The best one is the next year with Aretha Franklin. Oh, he gets so jazzy with Aretha Franklin. He's the queen of soul. And um, I think, do you think that Aretha Franklin was the last musical artist they had on the show that he knew who they were? Um, I think at four they have Gladys. At five, Willie Nelson. I say, at what point did they take it out of Vince's hands? <laughs> God, they have great musical guests these next couple of years. They also have Run DMC at four or five. Man, that's awesome. Um, yeah, Robert, I, Robert so Goulet be... does the national anthem at six in Canada. Yeah, Run DMC must be the point where somebody's just like, hey, uh, Vince, I know you don't know who this is. Run DMC was. He probably is. Gonna... Who, this is the question. Who did, though? It must have just been somebody they had working in their... I, I don't know what the setup was at that point, but yeah, it's not Vince. No, it's definitely not Vince. Vince thought Mo Oscar from Men on a Mission was a good rapper. I'm pretty sure he thought that Oscar from Men on a Mission invented rapping. <laughs> or our truth. Yes. It just it would plague me years later when like they would come out at WrestleMania and be like Welcome, Limp Biscuit, the official band of WWE. I and you mean, that really... wasn't a bad. Those guys no, no, were big. Those guys were big stars in two thousand one. But it just always made me wonder: Does Vince McMahon know who Limp Biscuit is? Because I can't imagine he does. No, no. I, my guess is Vince's musical tastes have not changed since the nineteen seventies. Yes, I would agree. <laughs> um, so Ray Charles performs "America the Beautiful." At points, he seems to either be forgetting the words or making them up himself. He comes up with better words. Like, his, his <laughs> version's better. good, and he told me he would. 
That's yeah. amazing. It's, it is a real, I mean, nothing tops Aretha in Detroit, but it's real good. Yeah, it's just one of those things where, like, he's so good, you don't even care what he's saying. It's it's yeah. beautiful. Um, and as, as as we should point out, it's America the Beautiful, not the Sp- Star Spangled Banner. Um, I assume this is just a Vince favorite. I love it. I much prefer America the Beautiful to the Star Spangled Banner as a song. And I think it's more fitting kind of a wrestling show. It's less serious, more kind of more of the pageantry yeah you can do a kind of jazzier you can kind yes. of like make more of a production with it it's nice it felt yeah. unique to wwe somehow they managed to play still images of americana over this okay um, okay hold on <laughs> great technical feat now they show images of americana but what else do they show still images of <laughs> Hulk Hogan, Hulk Hogan. fireworks behind him, like it, pixelated NES, not even NES, like Atari fireworks. Literally, it's 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 just a bunch of like America and American flags, and then it just kind of morphs <laughs> into Hulk Hogan. Well, like, what could be more American than that? And then there's, but just the idea that like you love America, right? Well, here he is as a person, America <laughs> the person. He's Hulk Hogan is America personified in this era. Absolutely. Um, and then we go to Roddy Piper for a promo. <laughs> Woof. This is um, quite a Piper promo. Uh, we talked about Roddy Piper being racist last week. Oh, man, this is a good one. I... Uh, he says he grew his hair out so that people could tell the difference between him and Mr. T. Um, uh, he says, I'll never shave my hair. Like I couldn't tell if he said, I'll shave my hair like an idiot or an Indian. I think he said Indian. I won't shave my hair like an Indian and paint myself black. Well, if you've seen WrestleMania six, he goes back on half of that. Ironically. (laughs) Um, yeah. And then he, he declares that if he loses, he will never love a woman again. <laughs> yes. And then turns to Bob Orton and it's just like, he turns to Bob Orton and just be like, I'll stick with you, pal. <laughs> Orton has been massaging his shoulders this whole promo. And literally like Gene gives him a look at that yes. moment like, wait, what? <laughs> Did he just say that? Oh, man. Oh, if Mr. T thinks he's going to beat him, he's been dreaming. Probably what ones. It's... <laughs> Roddy, this was the beauty of Roddy Piper, right? Is that there was no filter. Roddy was just going to say what the fuck Roddy was going to say. And sometimes horrific racism would come out. <laughs> it's just how you were. A he- I mean, it's just the wrestling business back then that like, yeah, if you're feuding with you know a black guy or a Mexican or a Native American or whatever. Yeah, you're going to say racist shit about him. It's how you do it. Got to sell tickets. But this was the entire appeal of Roddy Piper, is that even Gene Okerlund was taken aback by the things that he said. <laughs> oh, man. Um, and then we get our opening match, Paul Orndorff versus the Magnificent Morocco. Uh, Morocco has Mr. Fuji managing him. Orndorff is a face. Piper and Orton turned on him after WrestleMania. Him and Hogan are friends. That won't last for much longer. We hear 
Vince throws like to pre-recorded comments, but the video doesn't play. So instead we're just listening to the audio of them talking while the match is going on. <laughs> First major fuck up of the night. Not the last. Oh my God, Vince. Can you imagine? I'm surprised they couldn't hear Vince screaming in Chicago. I just, this is an era long before Botchamania, but like in these days, even if you misspeak, like it's something that everyone's going to like jump on Twitter and poke fun at like, oh, he said this instead of this. He said the name wrong. Can you imagine a show like this where literally every segment is fucked up in some way? Yeah. I mean, there are the shittiest like indie eye pay-per-view is produced better than this show. Yes. Um, after uh, Orndorff works on the arm, nothing is happening in this match. This was not a good choice for the opener, and it gets even worse when, in less than five minutes, they fight to the floor and are both counted out, and the entire crowd chants bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I, not a chant you were accustomed to hearing at a wrestling show in this era. But just imagine that like you went to. WrestleMania and the shitty Nassau Coliseum and you're sitting there and you realize that you're only going to get four matches and the first one ends in a double count out in four minutes. Yeah. And you're looking at your program and you're like, wait a minute. That's one quarter of the matches we're seeing here in New York. Was that dog shit that just happened? (laughs) Vince throws to Finkel twice for the announcement of the decision, but we don't hear it. Uh, you can see him kind of you know, motioning to somebody and pointing to his mic. Mic is not working. No announcement. Um, then we go backstage to Mr. T's promo. There's no one interviewing him. He's just talking. And then we hear the announcement from Finkel and the crowd chanting bullshit and booing. It's playing rotten. over Mr. T's promo. I just... Oh my god! Like this, and I can't help more production mistakes in ten minutes than you'd ever see on a WWF show. And it's I can't help but wonder if they had had their full crew together. Th- this never would have happened with Vince like actually overseeing the production and able to stop it while it was going on like that, and like having all of their production people who were like on top of it. This is what happens when you spread yourself too thin. Like you just don't have people who can fix this. Yeah. Um, so. Mr. T has a legendary boxer, Smokin' Joe Frazier, as his trainer, and the Haiti Kid, a Haitian midget wrestler, for some reason. That seemed a little random, but there were a lot of midget wrestlers running around at that time. The Haiti Kid is also black and kind of had a mohawk, so I'm surprised they didn't just make a mini Mr. T. I think at some point during the promo, Mr. T says that he shaved his own head to look like the Haiti Kid. Mm. Which is Sounds a great, right. it's a great Piper concept. He would never do that. He would never do that. He would also, he would also never get into a shrinking machine to shrink himself down to be the size of the Haiti kid either. Uh. Uh, next up, we've got the Intercontinental Championship. Randy Savage defending against George the Animal Steel. Thank God Randy Savage has come to save us. This was actually pretty good. I like this match. Um, You can tell they know Savage's money because he's got entrance music and almost nobody else does. Right. Um, 
He's not been with the company super long. He won the Intercontinental title from Tito Santana in January. He will proceed to hold it for over a year. George Steele is such a fascinating story to me as somebody who worked against Bruno Sammartino back in the 60s and at this point, I believe, was a public school teacher in Michigan, I think, Mm -hmm. and just wrestling on the weekends and in a top program. And this feud with Savage will continue for a year until WrestleMania 3. And there's just something to it. You know what I mean? Like, George Animal Steel isn't a particularly gifted wrestler, probably not in his day. Also and definitely not in his not. 50s, yeah. Yeah, certainly not here. But it doesn't matter. And I think my favorite part of this entire match is Susan St. James is not a particularly good commentator. Like, I don't know why you would expect her to be. But, like, she's so into this match. And, like, she's, she's, like, talking over Vince to talk about how, oh, George loves Elizabeth so much and he knows this how to respect a lady. Storyline where, like, George Steele is basically King Kong trying to literally kidnap Elizabeth. And the face commentators are like, oh, yeah, George knows how to treat a lady by stealing her away. And it certainly Harry. seems like it's against her will at this point, too. Yeah, I mean, later they would do some promos where she would seem kind of ambivalent about it. Um, I think to kind of, you know, I think make it less weird. But yeah, here it's just kind of like, oh, the monster is going to steal the pretty girl. Of course, Savage, you know, treats her like shit, both on screen and off. And was, according to George Steele, like terribly jealous of him, despite the fact that he was literally old enough to be Elizabeth's father here. Right. I just but Randy Savage was a weirdo. Somehow that combination of elements, though, like these guys had really great chemistry. Yeah. And this, I mean, this is a good match. Steel, the monster, Savage, you know, outsmarting him constantly and finding kind of cheap ways around it. Savage is going for cheap shots. He's powdering, but he's also breaking out some great high flying stuff. Flying body press, double axe handle. Um, at one point, Savage bails out crawls under the ring you know steel goes looking for him savage comes out the other side of the ring runs into the ring hits him with the flying knee from behind just like some next level stuff like especially with everybody who is here watching this show and nassau coliseum this is the only thing even remotely approaching good wrestling they're gonna see all night long like they must have thought he was a god yeah um steel bites savage savage goes to the floor and gets a bouquet of flowers from somewhere and yeah. hits steel with them. I, I think Vince said something about how a fan brought those for Elizabeth. See, I, I had thought that like George had brought them, but he didn't bring them out with him. So I didn't yeah. know how that worked. A fan bringing them makes more sense. Um, St. Susan St. James says that George has respect for women and Vince of course agrees with him. Of course. Uh, yeah. I, yeah. Um, Steel gets distracted by Elizabeth, gets hit with the double axe handle. Savage hits the flying elbow and Steel kicks out at one for some reason. At one. I don't know if this wasn't his finisher yet or what, but yeah, this is bizarre. But like, what else would he have been using as a finisher? Like, I can't well, think I, of the anything only thing else I've he ever really used. I mean, yeah, I, he may have used a pile driver in the territories before this, but... I always, you know, I always recall him using the flying elbow as his finisher. Right. Like, how could that not be a finisher, especially in this era? And he just treats it like trash. Just like, what? Kick out one, and Savage ends up winning with 
the flare pin with his feet on the ropes. Um, yes. A, f- a fun match. One of the better matches of the night. A good story. Yeah. My favorite part was when Steel bites open the first turnbuckle and then just decides he's going to feed it to Savage like popcorn. And then it's just everywhere all across the ring. Like, that was pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, next up, we've got Mean Gene in Chicago with Bill Fralick of the Atlanta Falcons and Big John Studd. They're talking about the NFL versus WWF Battle Royal. But, of course, during their promo, we hear the announcement of the decision from Finkel for the previous yep. match. We sure do. Um, Stud kind of just doesn't... He, he seems kind of pouty in this promo, and I've heard that he had uh, some issues working with the NFL players, and Freilich in particular. And I can tell you exactly why that is. Because Freilich looks like a million dollars here. Yeah. He's got the be- like the best body on this show. He's jacked to hell. He's handsome. He's got he's put together. He looks amazing. There's a great like sexually charged moment at the end <laughs> where like Freilich just like walks up to him to kind of do face to face and he just kind of like puts like <laughs> He puts Stud's face kind of in between his giant pecs, and it's kind of like, oh, that's weird. <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of shocked Freilich didn't end up wrestling after his football career was over. It's funny, too, because I don't, I never heard this man's name before, and apparently he was Rookie of the Year the season before, and he looks great. Legit NFL player. If something catastrophic must have happened, but, like, yeah, I guarantee you that Vince saw him and was just like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Uh, so next up, we're back in Nassau. We've got Jake the Snake Roberts against George Wells. You can see the future with Savage and Jake the Snake and the British Bulldogs and the Hart Foundation. Some of the you know mid-card building blocks of this coming era are right here on this show. I thought you said we're going to see the future with George Wells, who no. will go on to become Stone Cold George Wells, the greatest star in the business. Best guy to ever use the Stone Cold name in my mind. There, Yeah, absolutely. Um, George Wells referred to as one of the greatest Canadian football players by Vince McMahon. He was a four-time CFL All-Star. It's not the kind of thing that you would even feel the need to fact check. Like, oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> Who would lie about that? <laughs> Uh, Jake's only debuted a few weeks before this, but you know he's already on WrestleMania. He's already going to be a big deal. Already got the Python gimmick. He's got the P- Damien in the bag. I money from the very beginning. Absolutely, and it's honestly his act here isn't very like it doesn't really mutate very much to become the big star Jake. It's pretty much all already here. Yeah. So George Wells was actually a reasonably big star back in mid-Atlantic in the 70s, but here he's just, a, you know, he's at the end of his run and he's just doing jobs. Um, you know, like we've said, Vince kind of picked the Territory All-Star team and that included some guys who were not going to get pushes and just put guys over. Right. Um, George Wells was actually Bret Hart's tag team partner uh, when Bret first came into the WWF uh, the year before this. They worked together on TV a few times before... Brett turned heel and joined up with Jimmy Hart and Jim Neidhart to form the Hart Foundation. That would have been a very weird team if they had kept Hart and Wells together. Well, Vince wanted him to be cowboy Brett Hart, and Brett told him no and suggested the Hart Foundation. God, cowboy Brett Hart. One of the great what-ifs. Then a couple weeks later, Vince came back to him and was like, I've got this idea. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to put you with Jim Neidhart and Jimmy Hart. 
was one of those where somebody told Vince something, he forgot about it, and when he remembered it, he thought it was his idea. Yep, there you go. Happened all the time, apparently. All the time. Um, Wells actually just kind of dominates this match. I, Jake is doing some great. Jake gets backdropped, and he comes up kind of swinging wildly like he's knocked out. Wells hits a fantastic head scissor, even though he's like 260 pounds. And 260 years old, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then Jake goes over with the DDT in three minutes. Um, weirdly, Wells kind of dominated this match before Jake hit the DDT. Like, this is about as good a five-minute match as you can see, though. I mean, yeah. I mean, not even five minutes. It went about, like, what, like three? Two to three, real quick. But it's like it was very entertaining. They got Jake over huge with this. Uh, yeah, the crowd is already popping on the DDT, and when he brings out Damien after the match, I, it's just a money gimmick. Yeah, it's Su the perfect guy with the perfect gimmick. Susan St. James is like screaming and hiding behind Vince when the snake comes out. It, it's a great thing all around. Yeah. Um, and then we get one of my favorite parts of the show as Vince throws to Jesse Ventura, who's interviewing Hulk Hogan, yes. and they have a TV set up with Vince. And it shows like a fake, you know, like a fake, you know, they've like not photoshopped, but whatever projected the image onto the TV set, even though it's clearly not actually hooked up to anything. Yeah, that's why even bother with that detail? <laughs> I don't know. Just to just to seem just to seem really cutting edge. Okay, and th this is the few. This is the promo segment that I was talking about from before, where Jesse Ventura, for whatever reason, is the person who has been chosen to interview Hulk Hogan, and Hulk Hogan is cutting like an impassioned promo about how his ribs are broken, but he's not going to stop fighting because all the Hulkamaniacs are going to help him through. And then, just kind of randomly in the middle of the promo, he's like, "Guys like King Kong Bundy always take shortcuts, just like you, Ventura." He, just, he, he calls Light out words. his interviewer in the middle of the promo. Yeah. And Jesse gives it right back to him. That's the best part. No one during this era will ever get one over on Hulk Hogan in a promo. But Jesse Ventura gets the last word and yep. just leaves Hulk Hogan like stumbling at a loss for words at the end of this. Like, oh shit, he showed oh, him bad. The sparks were just flying here. Oh god, it's so good. It's, oh, I am so pissed we never got this. Yeah. Jesse was still wrestling a little bit around this time, but I just don't think he... I don't think he was up for that kind of match where, you know, he's going to have to wrestle. I mean, he's going to have to go at least 10, 12 minutes with Hogan. You know, he gets one little scratch on his arm. He could die because of this clotting condition. Right. Like, Just I can't blame him. not going to happen. He was really only doing tag matches. But if this and had he's happened... About, and he's about to go away to film Predator for several months. Right. If this had happened during like the pay-per-view era where you can kind of just do get all the money for doing like a one-off match instead of having to do like a run of house shows, I think maybe they do it. Yeah, it would have been fantastic. Yeah. Uh, we really missed out on something with Jesse not being able to have a run in this era cuz he would have been awesome. For sure. Um and next Finkel introduces our celebrities for the boxing match. We've got Joan Rivers as the ring announcer. Chocolate Thunder, Daryl Dawkins as awesome. one judge. Yeah, that was awesome. Love Chocolate Thunder. Good get. Kind of wish he'd been doing something better than this, actually. For sure. Like, he couldn't have been in the Battle Royal or something. That dude was amazing. <laughs> um, renowned jazz musician, Cab Calloway as another judge. 
and G. Gordon Liddy, one of the Watergate burglars, as the third judge. <laughs> and the fans boo him. Good, because he's an asshole. What a random like selection <laughs> G. of gifts. Gordon Liddy. And they're judging a boxing match. <laughs> Dude, here's the best part. The New York State Athletic Commission actually took this seriously and made Piper and Mr. T get boxing licenses. And they actually let these three judge a boxing match. Yeah, like that's the thing. Like they didn't force. Like they didn't like send their own judges. Like maybe you get one celebrity judge, and everybody else is a real judge. But like, what the fuck does Daryl Dawkins necessarily know about boxing? At least he's an athlete. Gordon Liddy's just a crook. Yes. Cab Calloway is. He plays. I I, I don't know what he plays. Honestly, I'm not gonna I unveil my know. ignorance here. I wish we'd had Jesse on commentary because he would have buried G. Gordon Liddy. Oh my God, yes, he would have. Uh, and Herb from the Burger King commercials is the timekeeper. Oh, is that what this? he was from? No, yeah, it was it was this weird promotion where I don't I don't get it, but it was like if you went in to get a burger and said I'm not Herb, you would get a discount, and if you were named Herb, you would say. I'm not the Herb you're looking for. And they're revealing this is Herb. He actually got a pop. That's such an amazing promotion, honestly. I really don't get it. But there's a Wikipedia page about this 30 years later. They're also going to have the Where's the Beef lady on this show. (laughs) And royally fuck that up. It's... This is like if like Jared from Subway and the Motorola. Well, Jared can you from hear Subway can't do it because he's in prison. Okay, that's a fair point. It's but like, it's like if the Motorola "Can You Hear Me Now" guy just showed up at WrestleMania to judge a boxing match. It's like, wait, what are these people doing here? Uh, Joan Rivers doing the introductions gets the order wrong and <laughs> introduces Piper first when Mister T's coming out. One job, but uh, gave her the card in the wrong cards in the wrong order. I guess. Bless her, she tried her best. She really did. Um, do you think they did a boxing match here because Piper wouldn't work a wrestling match with Mister T? You and I both know it's because neither one of these people would do the job. And well, so yeah, they had... of course, if it's a even if it's a wrestling match, like of course it's going to go to a DQ like this does. Right. Uh, I guess. Like, are, are they still trying to capitalize on Rocky here? And, like, when Probably. was Rocky three? Like, that was a couple years before this, it right? Was, it, it was a, yeah, wasn't it early 80s? Like, that was, I've heard that was why Vince le- or um, why Hogan left the WWF in the early 80s because uh, McMahon Sr. didn't like the idea of him doing the movie. So that would have been like 81 or 82, something like that. Like let, me, let me Google it. 82, yeah, so they would have been filming it, 81. Right. So in 86, it's weird for Mr. T, to st- for them to still be trying to capitalize off of the idea of Mr. T as a boxer. But I, I guess you got to do something with it. He and Piper both have ambiguous boxing. Both were gold gloves something or other. Yeah, I, I was gold gloves. Everyone was gold gloves. Mark was gold gloves. I, they, people treat that like it, it just means you were in the like you can claim you won it, but most of the time I think people just mean they were in the tournament, which yes. is 
like a local tournament in your town. I had to say, like, literally, there are like hundreds of Golden Gloves tournaments every year. It doesn't mean that you were like. Yeah. It's the not best. like you won the Gold Glove in baseball, where you were one of the top defensive players in the league. Yeah, it's it was not that kind of thing. No, not at all. Um, worked boxing matches suck. This one. The only good thing about this is there are a few times where it seems like Piper is um, throwing some live rounds. Well, th- that's what was great. Like, you would think that the way this would unfold, like if they did this now, it would unfold with Piper not obviously not being able to box, and then him having to do all sorts of like wrestling chicanery bullshit to keep Mister T from knocking his fucking head off. That is not what happens here. No. Roddy Piper takes it to <laughs> Mister T. He is on empty after about 30 seconds here. Mr. T looks like shit here. Piper blows uh, Piper, him up and just if starts he hammering him. You here could have I could have knocked him out. Like if he'd start really throwing. Right. And, and I'm this is I'm surprised he did this because I, I've heard he didn't trust Piper and that he was nervous that Piper was going to show him up because he knows he's not a real fighter and like if piper starts throwing when they get in there it's going to cause a problem for t like he's not going to be able to handle himself in that situation and that's exactly what happens yes yeah t completely gasses out and the crowd is cheering piper by the end of it yes like (laughs) piper makes mr t look like garbage but that's not even the most egregious thing the most egregious thing is that he doesn't Put over the like literally, Roddy Piper just spends like at least five minutes just like going to the body on Mr. T in the corner. It's not fun to watch. No, no, I mean, it's the, the only thing that's fun here is just the tension of you wonder if this is going to get out of control, which it does in a kayfabe way. But you know, right. watching if you, I mean, most people watching this are not particularly smart to the business and. Even if you were, you'd kind of be like, oh, I wonder, you know, th- this seems serious. It seems like these guys are actually mad at each other. Right. And it turns out they were. Yes, they were. <laughs> um, so we go a couple rounds. In the fourth round, Piper gets frustrated, body slams T, and we've got a big melee, and the whole thing gets thrown out. I- I'm surprised the commission didn't find Piper for body slamming T. I'm sure they yanked his license for that. Yeah, I'm sure that really hurt his future prospects. Never going to box in New York State again. <laughs> God damn it, my career. <laughs> like, I just love that the commission actually sanctioned this. Do you think they felt dumb afterwards? I, I don't know. They should like, have. It, did they think it was real? Like, do you I, genuinely think that they thought that? Man, there was always, there's always, there's a weird element to commission states. I mean, to this day... New York is still an athletic commission state. And when Brock Lesnar was suspended after his UFC fight, there was some question about whether or not he was going to be able to do SummerSlam in Brooklyn. And ultimately the commission was just like, no, we don't care about pro wrestling anymore. But like when his suspension was announced, I was like, I wonder if the commission will let him wrestle under suspension. And it's so funny because commissions are supposed to be the thing that protects people from themselves. Or, or from shady promoters and stuff like that. I think, and there's, I think there could be a role for them. Like it's yes. I, I think like pro wrestling is a business that could use more regulation in a whole lot of ways. I mean, we kind of talked about it with like this is why the wrestlers wanted to form a union because in this era, 
this company is making millions and millions of dollars, and these wrestlers are just paid at Vince's whim. Vince just pays them whatever he wants to. Except for Hogan. <laughs> well, yeah, the only leverage they have is like they can quit if they don't like their payoffs. So for right. most guys, it's no leverage. Like 90% of the guys on this card, if George Wells is unhappy with his WrestleMania payoffs, Vince is just going to tell him to go fuck himself. Pretty much. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, but the, the commission model was very outmoded. And here, where they're you know, making them, they're actually sanctioning this boxing match as if it's a real thing is just stupid. And that wraps up the Nassau portion of the card. They did not get their money's worth. Oh, no, they did not. <laughs> I'm surprised. I, maybe it's, I'm surprised that there was not more unrest from the crowd than there was. Like, I would have been pretty furious if I was them. God, yes. Like, that, to be sent home early, and you're not going to be able to watch the rest of WrestleMania because you're not going to get home in time to see it. Yeah, so like, you'd have to buy the pay-per-view on top of your ticket. So literally, this is what you got. To, like, I don't know if they showed it like closed circuit in the arena. but Oh, I, they did. Yeah, they, they, they okay. put screens down so people can watch the rest of the show in the arena. But yeah, so you had to stay there and you got to see some other terrible matches too. Yeah, yippee Kaye, I'm glad you got to see that shit. Yeah, so we move on to the Chicago portion of the card at the Rosemont Horizon. Much better lit than Nassau. Yes. Just a better build. This is Rosemont. They still run this arena to this day. It's now the Allstate Arena. Uh, Steve Austin and many other wrestlers have said this was their favorite arena to work because they had great acoustics on top of a hot Chicago crowd. Just something about the way the roof was built would make this one of the loudest arenas in the country. Yeah, Chicago is a great wrestling town, but the Rosemont Arena is part of why it's known as a great wrestling yeah. town. It's because they would go there and they always get such hot reactions because like even a tepid reaction would get like, it would amplify and sound great. There's a reason they run Rosemont instead of the United center, even though the United center is a bigger, newer building and kind of the flagship arena in Chicago. Rosemont's just too good to turn down and I assume much cheaper to rent. Absolutely. Uh, so we've got, Gorilla Monsoon, Mean Gene Okerlund, and Kathy Lee Crosby on commentary here. Gorilla's Gorilla. I, I don't like Gorilla that much when he's not with um, Jesse or Heenan. Just uh, can't play off Mean Gene at all. Mean Gene is terrible on commentary. He's Great the, interview. Awful on commentary. Yeah, we kind of speculated that might be because he's just not willing to be that have that kind of earnestness and take the product seriously. He's mean I think Gene. He'd be good today with today's kind of more ironic tone. But yeah, in this era, you have to be very, like you said, earnest. You got you kind of feel like moment to moment he's trying not to talk shit about what he's looking at. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if he drank while he was doing this, but it wouldn't surprise me. Right. Um, it's just mean, Gene. Uh, he's the coolest old guy ever. Yeah, and whereas Gorilla, or whereas Vince was actively including Susan St. James and kind of doing the work for both of them, Gorilla just flat out ignores their guest commentator. Does Kathy Lee Crosby say 10 words during this hour? I can't remember a single thing that she said the entire time. Nope. Which is okay, because sometimes that's the best you can hope for with a celebrity. Better right. than Art Donovan. Better than Art Donovan. We didn't really. Susan St. James said some rather dumb things, but I, I, I'm not going to play it up too much, because it's just like, she shouldn't have been put in this situation. And it's one of those things where, like, I can give you a lot of credit if you just seem like a genuine fan, 
or like somebody who's like really enjoying the show and is just expressing that. Like, I don't care that you're not a particularly polished commentator. Just come across with emotion. Like, that's why I always like Don West in TNA. He was a terrible commentator, but his emotion came through the screen to you, and it like it, it impacted the way you saw the show. How many can you think of a good celebrity comment? Bill Simmons was good when they had him on Raw because he's been a wrestling fan forever. There are very few celebrities I can think of who could do this commentary job effectively. It's just really hard. you got to be so comfortable in that atmosphere and with the give and take of commentary. Even wrestlers who have been cutting promos their whole career. Like it, oh, there it sucks plenty of wrestlers up. who sucked up. Piper was bad. Um, the, the Savage never. Savage was okay but never really got it. And the people who are good are almost never the people you think would be. You know what I mean? Like, I think Kevin Owens is a pretty good promo, not amazing, but he's a phenomenal commentator. CM Punk was great too. I yes. loved when they had Punk do commentary. I th- like when he. W- I was almost like, can he just do this even when he comes back to wrestle? Just he wrestles his match and he goes back to the booth afterward. Yes, he called an entire match by himself. It was better than having a three-man team. Like it's yes. just oh, some guys get that it. episode of Raw sometime. Yes, <laughs> the Icelandic volcano episode of Raw. No, that's not. Oh, is that? I'm thinking of a different one. I'm thinking of the one where the entire roster had quit in storyline. Oh, I always get those two confused in my mind because it's both kind of the, the same deal. But yeah, I, I, yeah, I know what yeah, you're talking this, about. I yeah, think this was, was, this was um, late, like fall 2011 when the entire com- the entire like roster walked out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I'm just like, confused. Punk and, and Sheamus were the only guys who were still around. That was so great. Um, so the next match, our opening match in Chicago for the <laughs> ladies' championship, <laughs> we've got the fabulous Moolah against Velvet McIntyre. Moolah has. Won back the women's championship after a legitimate screw job against Wendy Richter, which we covered on our episode last week. Uh, this match is like a minute long. It's good for the minute. Velvet does some you know, snap mares, drop kicks, and then uh, Velvet misses a splash and Moolah just pins her in like a minute flat. Let me paint you a word picture really quick. Because after a minute of basically snap mares... Bella McIntyre goes up on the top rope for a splash. She jumps over Mula. Pretty impressive, actually. She gets some great distance on it. Comes out of her top. Awkwardly tries to shove her boobs back into her top. And then Mula just immediately leaps on top of her and pins her for a three. I don't know if that now was... That helps me understand why the announcers didn't, common, didn't point out that Mula's feet were on the ropes. Because I know what they were looking at. Yeah. It's just... I wonder if it was the wardrobe malfunction was the reason they cut it so short, or I, I don't actually know, but it just felt real awkward. I, I doubt this was going longer than three minutes anyway. Right. Uh, second match, it doesn't get better from here. No. <laughs> Flag match between Corporal Kirshner and Nikolai Volkov. Um, this uses the rules from the Jack Swagger um or Mark Henry versus Rusev flag match where you don't actually retrieve the flag. You just get to wave the flag if you win. Which is... Which the... Volkov is, of course, <laughs> waving his flag before the match anyway. <laughs> he is a I love the idea. I love that somebody sat down one day and was just like, you know what? Flag matches are so shit 
What if we just didn't do one, but said that we were gonna? That's I better that. than the rules they came up with for that Cena Rusev match last year. Yeah, what the fuck was that even about? <laughs> the worst match of the year. God, and they tried so hard to make it be something, and it just wasn't. Um, I love Volkov singing the Russian national anthem. This is such a great cheap heel gimmick. You could still do this today, and it would get heat. I, how has Rusev never sung the Russian national anthem? That would be hilarious. Especially since he probably doesn't know it. <laughs> Neither does Volkov. That's a good point. Words. He doesn't speak Russian. He's Croatian. Well, that's my favorite part, too, is that like he's not really singing the <laughs> Russian national anthem. He's like, Oh, do be boo so loud. <laughs> You can literally see him looking around like, can I stop now? Are they booing enough? All right, we're done. Yeah. Um, Kirshner disrespects the Russian national anthem by interrupting. Um, What a heel. uh, Kirshner, this guy has a very weird and fascinating story. Um, One of the stiffest workers in wrestling. Nobody wanted to work with this guy. Gets fired from the company in 1987 after he fails a drug test. And then goes on to be a massive star in Japan as Leatherface. And then his gimmick will eventually be stolen by Terry Funk and brought back to WWF as Chainsaw Charlie, bringing everything full circle. Yeah. Um, th- th- there's some brawling. There's a ref bump. Blassie tries to throw his cane to Volkov, but Kirshner intercepts it. Kirshner uses the cane and gets the pin. Crowd pops like mad because these people are marks. Yeah, there's booking was really easy back then when you could do shit like this and have it get over. Yeah, let's take a guy who's not actually over or any good and we'll just put a fucking flag on him. Bam. Next segment. It's funny, Uh, too, because like he bobbles the stick so bad and it looks really horrible. And he clearly just conks Volkov right in the eye with it. Like it's it's stiff as hell. This is not when, like, The Rock caught Big Boss Man's baton. That's awesome. This was not. Corporal Kirshner's only WrestleMania appearance. Oh, no. Jim Duggan would do a much better version of this gimmick in later years. Jim Duggan was born to play this gimmick. Corporal Kirshner was not. Uh, Mean Gene takes over ring announcing for the Battle Royal. Our celebrities, we've got... The where's the beef lady from the Wendy's commercials as the timekeeper or yes, the timekeeper. She also like they hand her the mic and I think she's supposed to say like, oh, here's the beef because they've got all the guys in the ring. Mike doesn't work or she didn't hit the button right. But you know, doesn't work. Doesn't happen. It's such a missed moment, too, because like you see her and you're like, oh, shit, she's going to say it. She's going to say it. Yeah. And she doesn't. And it's like, oh. <laughs> they they set all this, did all this for this one match, probably paid this lady a lot of money. And got nothing. <laughs> Do you think her payoff was bigger than George Wells's? I guarantee you it was. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the NFL versus WWF Battle Royal. We've got 20 men total, six football players, and 14 wrestlers. From the NFL, we've got Jimbo Covert, offensive tackle from the Chicago Bears. Chicago! Harvey Martin, defensive end for the Dallas Cowboys. Ernie Holmes, defensive tackle from the Pittsburgh Steelers. Bill Fralick, offensive guard from the Atlanta Falcons. 
Russ Francis, tight end, San Francisco 49ers, and the star of the night, William the Refrigerator Perry, defensive tackle from the Chicago Bears. Again, to reiterate, the 1985 Chicago Bears, one of the greatest professional sports teams of all time, won the Super Bowl two months before this. They're in Chicago. This is a great get to have Jimbo and Fridge here. This has never really been revealed on any sort of our Qush reviews, Lawcast programming. Um, I'm an enormous Chicago Bears fan. Ooh, this is the only year in my yes. lifetime where it was good to be a Chicago Bears fan. Yeah. And William Refrigerator Perry was really the only person worth cheering for. So it must be said that when I saw him come out, I cheered my goddamn head off. Yeah. Fridge remains an icon in Chicago was inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame when they came back to Chicago for WrestleMania 22. I remember that being one of the most fun inductions because he killed it. Just a quick five-minute speech, and he was having the time of his life out there. He's just a big, charming, happy dude. This dude climbs up to the top rope and, like, springs off of it. He's, like, 350 pounds. Yeah, for an absolutely massive guy, tremendously athletic. He played fullback for us. It was great. Yeah, scored a touchdown in the Super Bowl. That's one more than Walter Payton did. Let's not touch that extremely touchy. We'll bring that up on our second podcast, (laughs) NFL Talk with Law and Cuse. Um, So the wrestlers, this is a weird crew of guys. Uh, Pedro Morales, uh, WWF champion from the 1970s, still around in 1986 for some reason. Tony Atlas, another kind of star of the past. Ted Arcidi, I have no earthly idea who that is. Uh, Dangerous Danny Spivey. Uh, uh, Hillbilly Jim. King Tonga, who is Haku. The Iron Sheik, who I always forget was still around after WrestleMania 1 because his two subsequent WrestleMania matches are very forgettable. Um, That no good motherfucker be Brian Blair. Dude, when he and Sheik actually get into it in this match, I popped. Yeah. Um, Jumping Jim Brunzel of the Killer Bees, Big John Stud, Brett the Hitman Hart, Jim the Anvil Nightheart, the living legend Bruno Sammartino, and Andre the Giant. Not a bad crew. You know, five former WWF champions, five current or future, former or future WWF champions in the match. You know, when I was first looking at this, I was just like, did, were they going for maximum star power? Because they have a lot of it here. And then it kind of occurred to me something else. And that's that, how many of these football players do you think were smart to the business when they entered this ring? I don't, see, this is interesting. They, they, you got to smarten them up for something like this, don't you? Like, they're actually going to compete in the match. I you mean, have theory, them punches. here's the thing. If you were going to collect a group of people who would be able to shoot on an uncooperative NFL football player, isn't this the group you would assemble? I mean, my understanding is it's basically impossible to, like, get somebody out of the ring in a battle royal if they're not working with you. Right. Like, I've heard stories at indie shows of guys being like, hey, let's have a shoot battle royal for fun and, like, Nobody can get anybody over the top. It's too much weight. No, you just dead weight them, and they can't yeah. do anything about it. Yeah, and like, yeah, Andre was bad in his day, but at this point, he can barely stand up straight. Right, but Looks I mean, a lot worse than he looked the year before this. 
there's just a couple of moments in this where like the football players seem like way out of control, angry about I, being I eliminated. Tell, I can t- well, yeah. I mean, I can also kind of believe that, you know, in the ring they decided like, let's, let's show who's really tough. Like that happened. That happened with Floyd Mayweather's posse and some of the wrestlers. Um, they got into it on screen before WrestleMania 24. Like that, that's something that happens. Um, right. Especially with professional athletes. So like, but like, I do think that there was a certain element of like, all right, let's put big stars in there, but let's also put Haku in there. <laughs> let's also put the world's yeah. strongest man in there. Yeah. Um, so I've heard that Fridge's payoff was $135,000, which if true, that was almost half the house in Rosemont, which they, I'm stunned how poor they 8,000 people in Chicago for this. Man, that's that's wild. They must not have promoted it very well. They got a ton of attention for the Battle Royal, though. They did a big press conference with the football players in Chicago, which all the Chicago press covered because of Fridge and uh, Jimbo. Like, I'm just yeah, kind of. I mean, I guess they just they didn't have a big singles match here. But I, I would have thought this Battle Royal would have drawn people in. This is the most. This is the most intriguing thing on this show. I will say too, like I think it was almost a mistake to put Andre in this because, like, y- you need to have Fridge win this match, right? Yeah, but Andre's not going to not win a battle royal. Exactly. So the second you put Andre in it, that it's already predetermined. Like, it's Andre's going to win. It's yeah. weird that Brett's the last one in with him, though. Yeah. So I mean, not a lot of note happens here. Um, so we get down to six. We've got Fridge, Stud, Andre, the Hart Foundation, and Russ Francis. Um, Fridge gets thrown out by Stud. Fridge asks him for a handshake. Stud agrees like an idiot, and Fridge pulls him over the top rope to get his heat back. Biggest pop of the night. Yeah. So it comes down to Brett Nightheart, Russ Francis, and Andre. The hearts tie Andre up in the ropes, team up on Francis and dump him. Andre throws out Nightheart, then he gorilla presses Brett over on top, over the top onto him. That was a cool finish. Man, it's it's nice to see Andre in like the last kind of period where he could like gorilla press somebody and get him over the top. Because obviously his body's gonna start to fail him not soon after this. Yeah. But this is sort of like the last time we get to really see him healthy. <laughs> Yeah, he switches to the one shoulder tights, the you know one shoulder singlet after this to cover the back brace he's wearing. Right. Um. So, a reasonably fun match. Also, seeing the Heart Foundation in blue gear is super weird. Google that. Super weird. Almost as weird as the gigantic thong that William Refrigerator oh, Perry was God. wearing. Yeah, he's wearing this red singlet and pants. And like his pants fall down right away, and we see that the sing- like the singlet for some reason is a thong, or it's probably just like a wrestling singlet, but it just goes up his ass. Like the amount of fabric that must have been up his oh. ass throughout this entire match is astronomical. Could he not have worn a belt with his pants? <laughs> some suspicious. Um. So we go back to New York for fun time with Vince and Susan. Um, this is the point where it starts to feel like Vince is putting the moves on Eversol's wife. He's getting so smooth with her, like <laughs> with those bedroom eyes. Yeah. yeah. Lust in his eyes. Lust oh, yeah. in his eyes. Yeah. Just yeah. 
when you come back and Vince is wearing his smoking jacket, <laughs> and then the interview Piper, who once again talks about painting his body black. He's he, you can almost see him <laughs> convincing got himself the idea to do this. Yes, waiting for the right time. Like he doesn't do this for real for like what three or four years. years. 1990. I bet you he pitches this to Vince every year from now until then. <laughs> oh my god. Um, then Jimbo Covert cuts a weird heel promo where he yes. complains about having been thrown out by Bill Fralick. To remind everybody, Jimbo Covert plays for the Bears and they're in Chicago and he's there whining about how he got unfairly eliminated. And like Fraley plays for the Atlanta Falcons. So, but it's not like they're going to have a blow off match. Why are we even having this promo? <laughs> I don't know. And then Sheik gets a promo where he calls Okerlund Gene Mean. <laughs> <laughs> and then says that WWF proved it's better than NFL. But he didn't. Why is no, he talking? He got, thrown out. he got thrown out before like five of the, almost all the football players lasted longer than he did. That's amazing, though. Ah. <sighs> So next up, we've got the main event in Chicago for the WWF Tag Team Championship, the dream team of Brutus Beefcake and Greg Valentine against the British Bulldogs. I don't know whose dream team that is. I think that if this were a just universe, I would have successfully already filed a lawsuit by now against the dream team for false advertising. Yeah. Uh, because that is the shittiest tag team. <laughs> Greg Valentine wants nothing to do with this tag team. Man, he's in this tag team for another year after this. He can't break up like, until WrestleMania 3. Whenever you see Greg Valentine as a singles, like he's full of life, yeah. he's bumping like crazy. And like tag team Greg Valentine, he just like half asses oh, it so hard. It's way worse when he's with Honky Tonk Man and he's dyed his hair jet black. Oh, he hated oh, that. My. God, Viscerally. I can't wait till we get to WrestleMania 6 and get to talk about that segment. Oh my God. GP drives him to the ring in his pink Cadillac. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the Dream Team are managed by luscious Johnny Valiant. Uh, they won the belts in August from the U.S. Express in Philadelphia. And the Bulldogs are the Bulldogs. They've got Captain Lou Albano and Ozzy Osbourne backing them up. Um, that was pretty cool, actually. Yeah, paired up with Albano because their promos suck. Yeah, and that never stops happening. <laughs> nope. Um, the Dynamite Kid is awesome. I mean, the Dynamite Kid is uh, Chris Benoit stole his entire kind of in-ring work from the Dynamite Kid, and the Dynamite Kid's doing it years before Benoit comes along, so he really stands out in the eighties. And they're kind of a really good team in that like one guy does all the work and then he tags out to like the big muscle powerhouse that everyone wants to see yeah. throw people around. Like and it's and he's not as jacked as he would later get. Right. He's just kind of big, but he's not he's yeah, maybe he's not, not a freak, yeah. He's not cycled on to the roids quite so much yet. Yeah. Um Valentine gets dominated, Davy Boy with a big vertical suplex. Um Bulldogs continue to shine. Valentine gets his ass kicked. Valentine turns the tide with, like, he went to pile drive him and then he dropped to his knees, which looks super dangerous. Yes. Like, this is that pedigree that Triple H screwed up and almost killed that guy with. 
like Triple H didn't screw it up. The guy taking it didn't understand what the move was, but like you've seen this gif online. This yeah. is that move basically. But just imagine like the way that he <laughs> fell was what Valentine was going for here. Not safe. No, it was horrible. Uh, Valentine goes to the top but gets thrown off by Dynamite. Dynamite. I have Dynamite tag. Dynamite slams Valentine. Davy Boy goes to press slam Dynamite onto him. Valentine rolls out of the ring and catches Dynamite with a cheap shot as Dynamite's coming back in. Um, like, really quick heat segment because they don't have enough time for this match. Um, hot tag to Davy Boy. He hits the running power slam. Um, Davy Boy gets his shoulder posted. There's a, some kind of drop suplex from Beefcake. He gets him up and just sort of drops him. Um, Valentine hits a sledge off the top rope, then a shoulder breaker. He has the pin but pulls Davy Boy up. And then we get the finish, and it's really weird. Um, Dynamite puts his head down on the rope. And Davy Boy whips Valentine into him, and this knocks Valentine out. And Davy Boy gets the pin, and the Bulldogs win the tag titles. Yeah, that was very, very strange. Yeah, a pretty decent match. Um, just change, you know, change, let's get a title change on WrestleMania is pretty much the driving force here. Yeah, and I mean, this is probably the best match of the night. I mean, is that fair to say? Yeah, I, I like the Funk tag match too. Yeah, I mean, that's also very good. But, like, this is just in terms of the match quality you would actually expect from a big show. Like, yeah, this is good. But this is another example of the problem. Like, if they had done two shows instead of three, because they have to load each show up with four matches. Otherwise, the people at that venue won't feel like they got any of their money's worth. But they don't have enough time because that means there's 12 matches on this show. So nobody's getting, like, the only two matches go more than 10 minutes. Like that's oh, it's 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 gonna get worse with the next couple WrestleManias. Yeah, it uh, just Re- sucks. WrestleMania 14 has like sixteen matches on it. Oh my god! In a, I mean, it's a they, they've expand they extend this show was probably three hours and fifteen minutes. They never quite hit four hours in this era, but they get pretty close with WrestleMania four and five. I mean, I'm currently reviewing WCW Spring Stampede 2000. Where they, attempt, where they attempt to cram oh, two. Oh, I remember that. They put two different tournaments on the same yeah. night. How uh, many matches on that show? Like 15? I am three-fourths of the way through the review, and I am on segment 19. So God. it's going well. <laughs> yeah. they, if you can believe it, they had just brought back Vince Russo. Oh, my God. Yes, I know, because he's in every segment. <laughs> yeah, made his presence known. Yeah. We go back to Vince's bachelor pad at the Nassau Coliseum where he's hanging with Susan. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and they just kind of talk about what's been going on. This now, I know that like, you mean... This feels like Vince's therapy. Um, just this is how he's dealing with his frustrations with this show. I just love the idea that like they go back and Vince is just like, okay... Um... Well, I guess I got to recap this, but I've hated every minute of this show so far. (laughs) And then we go to L.A. Here we have Lord Alfred Hayes, Jesse Ventura, and Elvira on commentary. This is, by a wide margin, the best team of the night. I mean, Lord Alfred Hayes is play-by-play. is nothing special. I I, I like his voice. Um, Jesse's great. 
And he has to be a little different here because he's kind of carrying the broadcast. He can't quite be as heelish as normal. And Elvira is actually actually turns out to be really entertaining here. Like Elvira just is fantastic. Fun. Gets it like goes back and forth with Jesse several times. There's some legit chemistry between her and Jesse. Yeah, as much as we are saying that like Vince McMahon and Susan St. James need to find a room, like it kind of feels like Jesse Ventura and Elvira banging out in the locker room after this is over. Like they got some chemistry. Jesse Ventura is a happily married man. I'll have you know. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> Hogan, Hogan once accused Jesse Ventura of being into wife swapping, which in retrospect is really funny. Yeah, that. <laughs> That's the amount of people in the wrestling business who have been accused of being wife swappers is one of the weird undercurrents in wrestling history. And then we've got Lee Marshall as the ring announcer. Did you catch this? That's awesome. It was Lee Marshall. Yes, Lee Marshall, Tony the Tiger from WCW in the late 90s. Great voice. Like, like I, I love yeah. that. Yeah. I yeah, popped for the, I had forgotten this and really popped for this. Um, yeah, Lee Marshall, this should have been, like, he was not a good commentator, but he was great for ring announcing. Oh, yeah, he just has, like, a great presence, like a great voice that kind of carries and gets you interested. It just took me right back to when I was, like, re-watching all the Nitros and he would call in from his 1-800 number. Oh, my God, Lee Marshall's road report. The road report. <clears throat> There, there were actually no nitro parties. That was a gimmick. <laughs> Lee Marshall was not actually having parties, and there's a reason they never showed any footage of these parties. But I just love the kayfabe idea that he was yes. throwing nitro parties at people's houses every single week. That's such a great idea. Um, so, opening match for LA, we've got Hercules Hernandez against Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. Um, Production value is, seems to be highest in LA. We definitely had more cameras here for the Hogan match than we did in the other two locations. I say that's where Hogan is, so that definitely yep. makes sense. Um, Steamboat against Hercules. Can we get Ricky Steamboat a real opponent? He almost wrestled Bret Hart here. They were planning to do it and then changed their mind. He and Bret had an awesome match on a house show in Boston that's on one of the Brett DVDs and the matches on the network, go check it out. It would have been the best match on this show by a gigantic margin. Well, it probably would have only gotten three minutes. So let's yeah. not jump to conclusions. Yeah, on Steve that. would have won with an arm drag in two minutes. So yeah, it wouldn't have been so great, but yeah, that's, and that's mostly special in retrospect because of what they became, but it is kind of, that's one of those great lost opportunities is Ricky steamboat during this period. Like other than the match with Savage, his whole WWE run is just a big missed opportunity. Yeah, like he's working with Hercules. Hercules is better than he would later be. He can move a little bit here, but not not the opponent you're looking for for Ricky Steamboat. Not at all. Though I don't really know who you do put him with. At this point, like they're not chock full of workers at this point, you know? Like that that comes later. Yeah. Um the announcers mics are not not at the proper levels here. You can barely hear them, especially Alfred Hayes. That's probably fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, Hercules gets heat for a while. Steamboat comes back and wins with the flying body press. Not not a bad match. No, it's it was. Ste it's a Ricky Steamboat match. They should have just given it. They should have put him on one of these and just had it just be Ricky Steamboat versus somebody for 30 minutes. That's the whole show. Good night, ladies and gentlemen. 
Uh, next up, we've got Adrian Adonis versus Uncle Elmer. We have uh, some very homophobic chants for Adrian Adonis here, um, kind of as you would expect. Uncle Elmer is super over. He's a 400-pound redneck in overalls. He's part of the same family as Hillbilly Jim and Cousin Luke. Vince just loves a good redneck gimmick. When we discussed Gold Dust, we talked about how WWE was incredibly complicit in making a gay baiting character and storyline. I don't know if it's just because I'm going to give them a pass because of the time, but I, I just don't feel like they're as complicit in Adrian Adonis just because, look, the 80s are a very different time from the 90s. Uh, the 90s, you sort of feel like at this point everybody knows the deal and you should fucking know better. In the 80s... Yeah, that, that, that's the difference here. We're still at basically... At this point, it's still kind of like, yeah, I, can, I, can sort, I, I can sort of believe that you know they just didn't really get what they were doing. Yeah, we're still doing Cold War angles. This is still the territory days. Like, I, I get it. I'll excuse it just for this one thing, just because I need to. Gold dust remains a whole other thing. And you can't say Vince didn't know any gay people because he had Pat Patterson working for him. Although I, d- I don't know at what point. I'd say, uh, when do you think he knew? I don't. Yeah, I don't. He told McMahon's dad when he went to work for him because he, you know, he had some incidents in previous territories where guys found out and weren't cool with it. So he kind of told him up front, like, here, you should know this. Uh, you know, let me know if this is a problem. And his dad was like, no, not a problem. Yeah, I, I don't know if Vince knew that, you know, Pat, Pat's husband was more than just his roommate at this point. Hmm. Um, but, I mean, obviously that, that, that was not that much of a secret. Right. Um, yeah, this is a quick match. Adonis is so great. Uh, The bumps he takes for a guy who's 300 plus pounds are incredible. He's doing flare flips. I just bumping on the uncle Elmer can barely move. And Adonis is killing himself trying to get this match over. Adonis is unbelievably talented. It's been his entire career really being unbelievably talented. Like it's, I want to see some of the work he and Ventura did as a tag team. Yes. Like that's a tag team that happened and it's, that's cool, man. Like I haven't seen much of it, but what I have seen of it, like it's just charisma for days. Yeah. Um, Adonis takes a massive bump onto the concrete floor. No, no pads here. They had, they had padding on the floor in Chicago because of the Battle Royal, but still the concrete floor in New York and L.A. at this point. And then Adonis wins in like three minutes with the splash forearm type of thing. It wasn't very pretty, but look, it's it's Uncle Elmer. What does it matter? Uncle Elmer, most famous for having a shoot wedding on Saturday night's main event because the Athletic Commission wouldn't let them do a fake wedding. And uh, Jesse Ventura really buried the wedding on commentary. And I think it may have caused some hard feelings between um, them, even though Jesse was just doing what he was told. I, I don't even really know how to respond to that. Like they, they couldn't do a fake wedding. So they said, fuck it. Let's marry him for real. Let's have a shoot wedding. That's, that's something else. Um, we've got a quick, Lord Alfred Hayes interview with Hulk Hogan. 
Hogan's second interview of the night, and there's another really long package to come. Uh, nothing of note here. It's, the only thing of note here is his promos tonight were oddly morbid because he keeps talking about how the ambulance was really a coffin when they put him in it. Yeah. Like, having to fight King Kong Bundy has made him confront his mortality in a weird way. Like, yes. it's, it's not very Hulk Hogan. No, although uh, when we get to the Warrior match, there's some weird overtones to that, too. Well, the very heavy suggestion is that Warrior is going to murder Hulk Hogan. Yeah, and Hogan doesn't he point to his palm and he's like, this is the only path to eternal life. Yep. Yeah. And uh, then I will assume the controls. <laughs> Hulk Hogan. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there was always a morbid element to the warrior character. Yes. <laughs> um, so next up, we've got the Funk Brothers against the Junkyard Dog and Tito Santana. The Funk Brothers, Terry Funk and Dory Funk Jr. Dory Funk Jr. has been refashioned Hoss Funk for some reason. Vince hates juniors, I think. Hoss Funk. This Why couldn't you just call him Dory Funk then? Dory Funk Jr., who I believe held the NWA title for four years in the 70s. Yes, this is a match uh, featuring Hoss Funk in Chainsaw Charlie. Great. Fantastic. Uh, the Funks have Jimmy Hart in their corner. And until this point, I hadn't thought about it, but. Another difficulty to this card is they had to figure out where the managers were going to be and how to, like, I guess maybe in some cases they just didn't have the managers with their guys because they were in different cities. Yeah, that is true. I hadn't really thought about that, but they, they well, kind of split it up know, pretty well. Exactly who was managing who at this point, but you know, these guys are all managing multiple people at this point in time. I, I almost wish that they had done something more with that. Just been like, Jimmy Hart's people only agree to wrestle in Los Angeles so that they can all stay together. Like, you could make a storyline out of that. Yeah, I don't know how that actually worked out. Yeah, they never really ever connect the managers to all of their various people, so it doesn't really matter. Uh, This is a chaotic match. They're fighting at ringside. Uh, Funk gets slammed onto a table, not through it. Um, I I saw a Honky Tonk Man shoot interview once where Honky Tonk Man claimed that Terry Funk quit the WWF because working with JYD just broke his spirit. Ouch. (laughs) So he told Vince his horse was sick and he had to go home to Texas. His horse was sick. (laughs) The I lost my smile of the 80s. By which he actually meant I have to go to the I have to go to WCW and have a really awesome feud on top with Ric Flair. Holy crap, that's a great feud. We got to do that sometime. <laughs> yeah, that that happens three years after this. I mean, Terry Funk, Funk gets a Saturday Night's main event against Hogan, but they're not really doing anything with him here. Yeah, that's actually another one. They get crazy bounty hunter Terry Funk against Hogan could have worked here. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, like Bobby Heenan has a bounty on Hogan and he calls in Terry Funk to take care of that. There's such an embarrassment of riches with like like a, the talent they have. And like you're never gonna get all the Hogan feuds that you could get, but like, goddamn. It's, it's like everybody in the whole promotion has a good feud set up with Hulk Hogan. But again, Bundy wasn't a bad choice, because Hogan against a giant dude is always gonna draw. Right. Um 
Uh, what happens here? Uh, the referee gets distracted, putting Tito out of the ring. Jimmy Hart throws his megaphone to Terry Funk. Megaphone shot, and the Funks get the pin. And Elvira's just like, eh, all, all's fair in love and war. That's some good commentary right there. <laughs> all is yeah. fair in love and war. So now it's main event time, but they have to set up the giant-ass blue cage, so we gotta kill 15 minutes here. <sighs> It's. I think I mentioned on the last one that I like how in the old days they would kind of give you that moment of intermission before the main event. It made the main event feel special. It made it, it made you wait for it. You would get interviews. You would get videos. Like it would, it would just present to you the idea that what you're about to watch is what you've been waiting for. Let's just build a whole thing around that. This is not that. This takes so long. Yeah. So. Jesse pitches to a video package, and we get to see Hulk Hogan working out. Uh, mean Gene comes in and pitches to the video of Hogan being attacked by Bundy, which we've already seen a couple times. Then we come back to Hogan lifting weights with Hillbilly Jim for some reason. <laughs> were they on-screen friends at that point? They were, right? Everybody's a friend of Hogan. I'm sure they were teaming on house shows. Like Ho- Hogan and all the... Hogan's friends with all the baby faces. That's like, fair. Th- this is different. Like We made fun of when Hogan and Brett were suddenly friends when Brett was the world champion. Like This is not that. This is them trying to bring Hillbilly Jim up to Hogan right. by having Hogan hang out with them. Yeah, it makes like, sense. A couple years after this, this would be Beefcake's role. Sadly, yes. Sadly, sadly, yes. Um, so the, the Hogan's doctor, who is surprisingly not George Zahorian, says that Hogan is risking permanent injury by wrestling tonight. Hogan like puts a 100-pound barbell around his neck and proceeds to do chin-ups, which was awesome. Yes. Like, I mean, I'm, what... sure he's, I'm sure he's just standing on a box or something, but still. Let the record show. Like, Hulk Hogan's in good shape here. Oh, yeah. Like, it's kind of become such a joke of, like, bald-ass Hulk Hogan to pump full of steroids, but it must be said that he's looking good at this point. Like, this is not later in the 80s when it's starting to get a little sad and the steroids are getting a little high. And like it, and then, like, in the 90s where he has to get off the steroids so he just looks weird and stretched out. Like, this is the good Hulk Hogan. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I love tra- I love training montages. I love the idea that you know the, the, a professional athlete like worked out and got ready for his big fight. Oh, it's so good! I'm amazed they don't do more of that stuff. Like, do you yeah. remember? Like, okay, look, I promise that it's not just because of Bobby Lashley that I'm bringing this up. <laughs> <laughs> but do you remember before like the John Cena Bobby Lashley yeah. match where they were having like all of the wrestlers talk about like, oh, these two are so great, and they were just like showing them doing workout stuff. I, I always mark for that build. And when they did it with Rock and Brock for yes. SummerSlam, when they did it for Sean and Brett for the WrestleMania Iron Man match, I just I always get up for that. It just creates such a feel of like equals and awesome and like they're really building towards something. Well, I, I just feel like that should be a standard for a big match, but instead it's something they do like every five to ten years. Yeah, it's a shame because it's that rules. Now Jesse interviews Bundy and Bobby Heenan. Bundy presumably trained for this match by eating a bunch of cheeseburgers. <laughs> I, don't know I don't know what a Bundy training montage looks like. Probably just him squashing a bunch of dudes. Yeah, just like avalanche everybody. Seeing somebody Sits standing next to like a, Yeah, somebody standing next to a telephone pole, he just squashes them. 
you know, Heenan says tonight's the night Hulkamania dies and Bundy Mania begins. Bundy Mania. Boy, Bundy that sounds Mania. like a serial killer thing. Yeah, Bundy Mania is like like somebody went back in time in Back to the Future and accidentally changed the future. And when they come back, instead of Hulkamania, it's Bundy Mania that's running wild. It's Bundy wearing the red and yellow. (laughs) Oh, and then we go back to New York for another Vince and Susan segment. How have they not already fucked by this point? Like, seriously. (laughs) Somehow, yeah, their chairs feel like they've just been moving closer and closer throughout the evening. I I hope that Dick Ebersole was in one of these other arenas and not this one. And he wasn't just looking (laughs) through the camera, grinding his teeth the whole time. Oh, God. Lee Marshall introduces the celebrities for the main event. They bring out Dodgers manager Tommy Lasorda. He's heavily booed. Um this was surprising to me since they're in LA. Uh, he was always kind of booed season. there. Yeah, was he not popular? I mean, it's not like he was just one of those guys that you always boo. Like he was associated with the city, but everybody hated Tommy Lasorda. Yeah. Um, Ricky Schroeder, who's some kid actor, is the timekeeper. Mm-hmm. He's also booed. Crowd is getting a little ornery at this point. And some other actor, a Robert Conrad, is the referee, but he doesn't have anything to do because it's a cage match and you only win by escape. At least he doesn't get heavily booed. <laughs> yeah. So here we are. It's the main event for the World Wrestling Federation Heavyweight Championship. Hulk Hogan defending against King Kong Bundy. As Lord Alfred Hayes says, this is what the world has come to. That was, in fact, the tagline for this show. This is what the world has come to? What the world has come to. That's a great tagline. Yeah, I actually really like The more I think about it, the more I really like it. Yeah, that's great. Um, I saw a shoot interview with Bundy where he claimed he was paid 50 grand for this show and says Hogan got a million. I don't buy that Hogan got a million for this. Yes, yeah, I don't believe he got too, that little. Too much that little <laughs> no i'm joking yeah um bundy's story was hogan got a five hundred thousand dollar check and went to vince and said that's nice but where's the other half brother and vince cut him another five hundred thousand dollar check if that's Again, true I, I don't believe maybe wrestlemania 3 i don't believe that for this See, here's the thing, is that I can't square the idea of Hulk Hogan bullying Vince McMahon and in the same week running to him crying, telling that Jesse Ventura is going to form a big bad union. Like, I can't square those two Hulk Hogans in my head. Well, maybe maybe that's what the million dollars was for. That is, see, if you want to say that that's what happened, I totally yeah. believe that. Because that saved Vince a whole lot more than a million dollars. Yes, it did. Um... Hogan making his entrance scales the cage, tears up his shirt, and you know he's like Bundy's like, "Come on, get down here!" And you know Hogan's up there posing. Thought this was a great piece of theater. Absolutely, everything about this match that doesn't involve wrestling is really great. Actually, it feels huge. Do what they can, but you know it's Hogan is a giant in his own right. Like if Hulk Hogan, Hulk Hogan is like bigger than Braun Strowman, right? I mean, I think well, like, they're of comparable size, yeah. yeah. 
and like Braun Strowman is a giant today, but we don't think of Hogan as a giant or even a big man because of the guys he wrestled. He's like six six, six seven, something like that. When him and Andre stare down at WrestleMania three, Andre's only a little bit taller than he is, and part of that is Andre was you know actually only six nine or six ten, but Hogan is also gigantic in his own right. Yeah, you just don't remember that because he was always facing the biggest people that they yeah, could like King Kong Bundy run us up. Four hundred plus, like just absolutely enormous. Like King Kong Bundy looks twice the size of the NFL offensive linemen who were in that match earlier. Yes, like King Kong Bundy is several inches taller than the fridge and thicker. And it must be said that like Hogan's this big dude, but he'll spend so much of his career selling because he's facing all these big guys, and he's really good at it. Yeah, Hogan is a great seller. Like, I I would say his selling is the by far the best thing he does in the ring. Oh my god, yes! Like his offense is fucking garbage. It's just crappy punches <laughs> and the like the back rake. It's it's garbage and it never gets any better. But it's because it doesn't matter. Selling is all that he needed to be. Yeah, at one point Elvira gives Jesse some lip, and he's like, "You don't knock that out. You don't knock that off. I'm not taking you out with me tonight." Great line. Oh, Jesse's so smooth. A <laughs> uh, lot of buzz for this. This definitely felt like a big main event in the re- in the arena. Yeah, it did. It's just it, the, it's the buzz Hogan has, and Bundy had fucked him up, and people hadn't seen that happen before. He was vulnerable. Like this is the first time. Like before this, they'd been given Hogan similar guys to him like like Sheik and Piper and guys are like they're not so much physical threats so much as they are like mental threats right this is sort of the beginning of them just throwing monsters at Hogan left and right yeah this is a every Saturday night's main event it seems from this is Hogan against some big giant monster I guess it's, it's just a formula it's an easy thing to book and right oh it, it always drew um um, you know, Hogan opens up with some right hands. He hits the big boot, but Bundy doesn't go down. Bundy goes to Hogan's ribs. Uh, Bundy goes for the door, but Hogan cuts him off. I should point out this is the you know kind of classic blue bar cage. I believe this is the first time they had used it, and this would become the standard cage. I love the way this cage looks, but I understand why they went away from it because it just looks like it would hurt like hell to get thrown into that thing. Oh, absolutely. Especially here. Like, it doesn't have give to it, like, at all. And I guess it was so heavy they couldn't hang it from the top of the arena because they had to, like, bring it out. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, it was always a pain to get that thing set up because it would take 10 or 15 minutes in the middle of the show. Yeah, and as I aforementionedly said, uh, fucking boring as hell. Um. Hogan or Bundy gets the wrap off Hogan's ribs and chokes him with it. Hogan runs Bundy into the cage and Bundy blades for no particular reason. Yeah, that's so unnecessary. Shouldn't like Hogan be the one bleeding here. Wouldn't that make the match really dramatic if Hogan was busted open? Had we seen Hogan blade up to this point? Not on any. Well, they were not. Yeah, they weren't going to do blood on NBC. So not. I mean, not. On their only TV at this point is they do pay per views and they do the Saturday night's main events and you know Hogan matches are not shown on the syndicated shows so no the crowd has never seen Hogan bleed at this point. This would have been a big moment to do that. And I don't think Hogan. The, the only time I remember Hogan bleeding in a match from this period is when he does it against Slaughter at WrestleMania Seven, right? Desperately trying to get that match over. 
say I'm not even sure that was part of the plan. I think that was just fuck. They don't care at all. Blade, <laughs> Blade. Blade. <laughs> um, Hogan tries to slam Bundy, but he can't get him up. Bundy hits the corner splash, and he goes for the door, but Hogan hulks up and drags him back in. Nope, too soon. There was another corner splash, and then Hogan hulks up. Yep. A big power slam by Hogan. Not a body slam, a power slam. I don't know that I've ever really seen him do that move before. Cool. Yeah, it did. Leg drop, Hogan climbs, Bundy chases, but he gets knocked off. Bundy tries to crawl out the door. Almost makes it. They timed this well. This was dramatic. It's it's really dramatic and great. And for a second, despite the fact that I completely know that there's no universe in which this actually happened. Oh, I was like, isn't it tempting if you're Bundy to screw him? Like, you're just going to get fired, but still. But just like at this huge an event, like you'd be made for life, wouldn't you? If you oh, could yeah. get a job anywhere. Absolutely. Yeah. You go, go to Jim Crockett. They'll sign you forever. You're the guy who beat Hulk Hogan at WrestleMania. Exactly. Like they're world at- champion. That had to have run through his mind at least once. Especially since, as we know from future shoot interviews and stuff, King Kong Bunny, kind of a shitty guy. (laughs) (laughs) Doesn't tip. Doesn't really give a shit at all about any of this. (laughs) Yeah, I I should point out, this is basically it for Bundy. Like He is in the midget match the year after this. Yes. Then he's gone from the WWF until they inexplicably bring him back in 1995 and he wrestles The Undertaker at WrestleMania 11. Maybe we would think back on this WrestleMania better if King Kong Bundy had become more or done more. Because here it just kind of seems like fucking King Kong Bundy. Why? Why would you waste this on King Kong Bundy? At the time it made sense, but in retrospect... I mean, he was over. He's got the five count gimmick. Right. You can't knock it over doing the five count. Ask Biggie. <laughs> yeah. Um, Hogan roughs up Heenan after the match to be a good role model to the kids watching at home. Of course. Hulk Hogan, absolute secret heel, as always. I love Jesse's indignation at this. What did Heenan do to him? He didn't do anything. Oh, this is ridiculous. I'm going to have to come out of retirement and take him out. <laughs> God, if only, Jesse. If only. He would make that threat at the end of every WrestleMania in this era. (laughs) One of my great, one of my favorite running jokes. Oh my God, that's Um, great. And that is the end of this awful show. This was definitely worse. At least WrestleMania 1 was only two hours. This was over three. Yeah, so... I guess we, we should do this with each WrestleMania. This, I, since we've only done two so far, this ranks at the bottom, and we could probably do all of them, and it would stay here. Yeah, I guess if we're just going to keep going. like I guarantee you that it won't be long until we add another one to the bottom. 
I mean, oh, we probably funny. there are other there are other bad ones, but like I'd rather watch WrestleMania nine than this. I was about to say, like we've already done one that could probably be considered by many people to be the bottom, but honestly, I like it more. When people talk about like WrestleMania not or thirteen or even like some of the ones from the twenties as being the worst. I'm just like, I don't believe that these people have watched a show like this. Like WrestleMania 13, sure, is not a good show, but it has that amazing Bret Austin match on it. Right. Like, let's just there be perfectly no clear. There is no match on this show that, that is really anything. If you've never seen this show, you're not missing anything. Let me be perfectly clear. The best match on this show would be a shitty match on Raw. Not even Raw. Yeah. Like, superstars. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's, I mean, it's that level. And there's, I mean, there's a difference in era, but if you watch a Starcade from this period, there are some badass, physical, fast-paced, hard-hitting matches on this show. Like it's just a WWF style from this era. The, the wrestling is not serious. They, they are not, you know, working hard physical matches in this promotion at this point, with the exception of a few guys. There's a reason why Vince McMahon doesn't attempt to do great wrestling because he knows he's completely outclassed and outgunned at that. And he won't feel like he needs to do that until it has time to put the company around Bret Hart. Like wrestling won't become important until then. Yeah. And so th this show, uh, awful. I would give this like a D, D minus, maybe an F. Yeah. Garbage. Would not yeah. recommend. No. Fortunately, things will get be much better next week. Uh, the march to WrestleMania will continue with the crown jewel of this era, the all-time extravaganza, WrestleMania three. An unspecified gigantic number of people packed the, packed the Pontiac Silverdome for one of the great spectacles of all time. A show that is... It really only has two good matches on it, but you won't fucking care. It's just that cool yeah. to watch. It's just for the atmosphere is so great. And the, the matches are better than these matches. The commentary is so much better. The presentation is so much better. The crowd is much hotter. Every, it's just everything comes together perfectly. They will. They are still today chasing WrestleMania 3, and they'll never yeah. catch it. I mean, sure, they did. I mean, they got more people in Texas a couple years ago, but just not the same kind of show. Nope, never will be again. Now, so that's what we've got next week. A much better WrestleMania, Hogan versus Andre, uh, Steamboat versus Savage, and Roddy Piper's retirement match in 1987. Yeah. <laughs> His fucking retirement, sure. So we've got that for you next week. Hope to see you again.